0: This is Johnny Griffin speaking, when we're in Ann Arbor, we are listening to station WCBN FM Ann Arbor.
1: Afternoon, you've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today. I'm so happy to have in the studio Sergio Troncoso here. Um, thanks so much for coming through the snow, the um, yeah, all of the, the terrible weather to come over to the studio, and because you just <laughs> arrived via.
2: Thank you, Tia. Yeah, just. Just off the airport a few uh, a few hours ago, so I'm I'm having a great time in Michigan.
1: And thanks to Colin for bringing you over to the station. And um, and I should say you've picked all the songs for today's program. I did. And we started off with a little Bruce Springsteen. Um, what does the what does the boss mean to you, Sergio? I, you know he, uh,
2: you know when I was uh, in in, in Islera, on the border in the Mexican border and then going to Harvard you know which was like going to Mars for me I was this poor kid from the border you know Bruce Springsteen was like a, a guy writing songs about the working class a guy writing songs about you know people on the margins and I think all of that was very appealing to me and uh, you know my uh, my favorite album was Darkness on the Edge of Town Love that album And still play it often. And because it's gritty, because it's dark, because it's people outside the margins. And that's exactly who I was, you know, growing up.
1: Yes, and so and having that, did you find? Did you actually come to like find Bruce Springsteen when you were at Harvard, or was it um, that did you know of Springsteen before no, you got no, there? No,
2: no, no, no. I knew of Springsteen way before that. I right,
1: because it's not like you're you're you were on the border <laughs> town. You weren't in, on, in some <laughs> no. Like well, bar, so. it, it did. See, well, <laughs> what Harvard, was I thinking? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, and I mean, you know, I mean, Isleta. You know, I grew up in Isleta. It's such which, a
1: beautiful sounding town. It, it
2: is. It, it's like a little. A
1: yeah, it's that- a colonia.
2: It was uh, literally colonia means a shanty town, and uh, we had no electricity and and running water. It was uh, on the outskirts of El Paso, and uh, dirt roads on the street. Uh, my parents built their own adobe house, and as um, wow, that's- yeah, and as and as uh, you know, to paraphrase Tina Fey as Sarah Palin, I could see Mexico from my house, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. Uh, you know, it was like pioneer living, and my parents because your from, parents had emigrated. Yeah, from- my parents were from Juarez, and and so you know, we I describe it to people as kind of Tom Sawyerish, but on the border. You know, I love to play in the canals and get crayfish to fight against each other, and explore the cotton fields, bring back dead snakes and dissect them, and that kind of stuff that I would do as a kid. And then when I got into Harvard, it was like going to Mars. You know, it was like, "What the heck am I doing here?" You know, and uh, so that was a big leap for me. But but the boss was always you know somebody I could listen to and 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 really appreciate and and feel like he could make something of himself starting from nothing.
1: And that, and and that leap, Sergio, that you're saying, um, it, it's kind of um, amazing because sometimes, you know, growing up, uh, if You're not even sure what are the possibilities or what could be opportunities. Um, Was there a a teacher at your school or was there... How did you decide, like, I'm going to go to Harvard?
2: Well, that's a really great question. Um, I had, I guess, the most important teacher was Pearl Crouch. And she was a journalism teacher at Isleta High School. Uh, she was a phenomenal teacher, very tough as nails lady, mm. who reminded me actually a lot of my abuelita, my grandmother. Oh, yes. My grandmother, um, and 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 really just to go back a little bit, I got into storytelling through my grandmother. She used to tell these great stories of the Mexican Revolution. Um, It was very violent. It was uh, very exciting. And of course, as a kid, I loved it. As I tell my kids, it was like Call of Duty, but Mexican style. You know, they would hang, I mean, Pancho Villa would come into Chihuahua, where my grandmother was a teenager. And he would hang lawyers and bankers from telegraph wires. And this these are the kind of stories she would tell me all the time.
1: And these were stories from her life. Absolutely. From her growing up. Absolutely. Not just tall like tall tales or oh, no. you know, like a no, storyteller no, 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 no. like winding a yarn. Right. It was the real stories.
2: Oh, absolutely. And you know, as a kid, imagine, you know, these are the kind of exciting violent stuff that. To- <laughs> That your grandmother would tell you and your parents would want to shield you from. And she would be smoking her cigarette and <laughs> drinking her coffee right. on, the, on, the, on her stoop and telling me these great stories. And I would spend weekends with her to hear these stories. And my, my, you know, then I would spend Monday through Friday at, at home in Isleta with my parents.
1: Is this your grandma Berta? Or? No,
2: Berta was my mother. Oh. And it was, my, it was her mother. Dolores. And in fact, the very first story I wrote when I went to Yale at the graduate school was called The Abuelita, which is about this Yale graduate student who's studying Heidegger. Um, which and- is
1: kind of like what was happening for you, right? At that time when you went to Yale?
2: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You- so- <laughs> A lot of my fiction is very somewhat autobiographical. Great right. And, and and this this Yale graduate student, this Chicano, is calling his Mexican grandmother and arguing about philosophy. And it was very unusual piece at that time because it was a mixture of philosophy and literature, yet it was it was also Latino lit and Chicano lit. And I and I wanted to portray characters that have minds, you know, characters that are intelligent, because that's how I was, although I was very poor and I began very poor. It didn't mean we didn't have meaningful discussions, profound discussions at the dinner table. And I think too often I would see people disparage you know, poor communities from the outside without really trying to understand what is going on in that household, what is going on at that kitchen table. And it actually might be very important what's been going on, but because it's poor, you dismiss it. You say it's not important. You know, who cares? And, and I think that was certainly one of the things I wanted to do. But, but, you know, I wrote that first story because I wanted people not to forget my grandmother because she was this tough-as-nails lady um she um she had shot and killed two men who attempted to rape her during the Mexican Revolution she uh she said there was the 911 during the revolution you know the the revolutionaries the villistas would come in and would take over the town take over the banks hang a few lawyers and bankers and take over the women and so you needed to to learn to to defend yourself and so these stories are are really the the first time I started getting into storytelling and then when I started crafting them is in high school, this Pearl Crouch, my journalism teacher kind of it was kind of an Anglo version of my of my grandmother, you know very tough, very demanding, but loved me and and expected many um, things from me she she wouldn 't take just you know crappy stories from me. she said, "You can do better than this." And, she um, saw it in you. Oh, she yeah. She recognized it. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a sophomore at East Letter High School, before I had been to the fancy neighborhoods of El Paso, she took me to San Francisco that year to comp- compete in writing competitions. And then the next year, she took me to New York. Um, to uh, compete in, in the in the Columbia Scholastic writing competitions, um, you talk know talk about co-
1: someone who really believes in you oh
2: absolutely <laughs> Pearl Crouch said you know you don 't even have to stay in Texas; you can go anywhere yeah. and so they, she she was instrumental, this writing teacher yeah. I had, and then a counselor. Irma Sanchez said, "You know, they would love a kid like you at Harvard." And I didn't know what Harvard was. I'd never visited. I didn't know what the Ivy League was.
1: <laughs> just you a know. bunch of ivy.
2: You know it what? Looks what is green that? There. <laughs> so, so I, I had no idea, um, and I I'd never visited. I applied without ever visiting a school, um, and they took me. And so, so that you know, that was that. And, and of course, my mother said, well, John F. Kennedy went to, to Harvard. it must be a good school, you know, because John F. Kennedy being the first Catholic president was such a hero in the Mexican-American community. And so my mother said, you know, I don't want you to leave. But on the other hand, if Kennedy went, then it must be OK. <laughs>
1: right. So it got her stamp of approval. Exactly. <laughs> Thank goodness J- JFK went there then. Right.
2: Yeah. No, and it was, you know, it was one step at a time. Um, and. um and, you know, one of the things that I certainly have written about in a lot of my fiction <coughs> is that when, when you go from, from where I started to where I ended up, um, too often I think people say, um, you know, oh, you, you learn so much, et cetera. But a lot of what I uh, write about is that, and, and, and I talk about, is that um, Harvard and Yale have as much to learn from Isleta as Isleta has to learn from Harvard and Yale. And, uh, you know, there's so many things about um, places like like the Ivy League in which you have very intelligent people, but not necessarily moral people. And I think people make that that morality and intelligence are the same thing. And I've written about this, you know, in in stories and in in essays.
1: Or even even the ability to sort of see, like, more openness rather than being so... Because people can be so bright, but in a very particular way.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I had had so many um, stories about... You know, I I remember arriving at Harvard and in the cab, and I had never... (laughs) (laughs) Been to the Northeast. And I mean, I'd never been to Boston, I'd been to New York. Um, but all, always with a, with a, you know, with Pearl Crouch, and I am arriving in Harvard Square, and, and I tell the taxi driver, "Well, where's you know, you are taking me to a park? Where's the school?" And that was the school. Oh. <laughs> you know, it was Harvard Yard, right. you know. And I and I am thinking, where, where is the school? It's all around you. These all these buildings are the school. And you know, I had uh, bell bottom jeans and Led Zeppelin T shirts. Did not have a coat. I didn't know Harvard and Boston got cold.
1: Oh no. <laughs> so, so arriving in September, I'm picturing you. So you had to... I, w-
2: I went to Keysers, which is a used clothing shop to buy an old used coat <laughs> because I didn't have any. Uh, but you know, you, you, you adapt. You adapt. I think that's a, the, the other thing I tell kids when I used to go and talk to kids in the border about coming to the Ivy League. I said, you know, you ha- the, the people who adapt the quickest will survive. You know, you have to adapt or you're going to be eaten alive at a place like Harvard or Yale.
1: And it doesn't mean leaving things behind. It, it means adding things. It, it, yeah, it. and it means all of that.
2: Yeah. It, you do leave things behind, but you also do learn so much. You get exposed to so much. And you challenge yourself in a way that, you you know, you might not challenge yourself uh, by staying in, in the same place. So... You know, it's and it's a lot of pain. You know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't recommend it for anybody that other than who has a very strong uh sense of self because you're always asking yourself, Where do I belong? Where should I go? What should I do? Uh and you know, and, and when you're pushing yourself in that way.
1: These questions you've stay with you absolutely well and so you you were you've come to read in the zell visiting Writers series tomorrow mm-hmm. at uma um and that's at five o'clock um before we go to break i'll just read your short bio so that okay. we and then when we come back we'll talk more and maybe hear some if absolutely. you don't mind reading one of the from the novel Um, Sergio Troncoso is a writer of essays, short stories, and novels. He was born and grew up in El Paso, Texas, the son of Mexican immigrants. After graduating from Harvard College, he studied international relations and philosophy at Yale University. Troncoso was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters and the Hispanic Scholarship Fund's Alumni Hall of Fame. He is a resident faculty member of the Yale Writers Conference and and an instructor at the Hudson Valley Writers Center. Um, And you can check out Sergio's website at sergiotroncoso.com. And we've already heard that you're Isleta. That's the town. Isleta, yeah. That's the town. Where are you from? Okay, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back. Today on the program, Sergio Troncoso is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. back if you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Sergio Troncoso is here and we've got the Liz Engineering. Uh, we've got a, a, a studio audience member, Colin, as well, listening in. And all you listening out there on this cold Wednesday, we're glad you're there. Tomorrow at UMA, Sergio, you'll be you'll be reading at 510. Do you have a plan of what you're going to be reading? Are you, or is that still, you're going to decide it tonight? No, no, <laughs> I,
2: I think I have a plan. I'm going to be reading from first, my novel from this wicked patch of dust, which is um, a novel set in Isleta where I grew up, and, and that's what my mother, by the way, called Isleta este maldito terregal. This wicked patch of nothingness that we grew up in, she would call it that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's that's what it is. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, and there's not a lot there. Would other she, than
1: would she say it in different ways? Would sometimes she say it in sort of a, a sort of um, impatient way? But in sometimes an endearing way, too? Or was...
2: Absolutely. No, okay. no, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it is. It has a... a she would never leave Isleta. Islera is also um, beautiful people. S- sitting out, for example, my parents have, for a long time, had la hora social, in oh. which they sit in front of their porch, drinking coffee and talking to the neighbors as they walk by. So oh. it is that kind of rural hominess, quality, that is also very special. And neighbors are important. Right. But it's also in the middle of the desert. It's also canals, and, you know, and it's poor. And uh, so it's all of the above. It's some great people, great characters, but also, you know, poor. And, and, And it's, by the way, Isleta has been around before the United States was the United States. The Isleta mission was founded in the late 1600s. By Spanish missionaries, so it was there way before this country even existed.
1: Which is so interesting because, with it being on the the on the outskirts of El Paso, than this big city um, on the border, mm-hmm. um, when you were very young, there wasn't electricity even, and you had an mm-hmm. outhouse, right? Like, so there was really in the 60s, yeah, in the 60s, yeah,
2: still. yeah. No, it was, you know, it was a. a just on the outskirts of the city limits. And so there was no, the streets were not paved. There was no uh, drainage. Um, And it was mostly cotton fields and horse farms. And and these little colonias, people would buy their little lot. I think my parents, when Steve Inskeep interviewed interviewed us in in El Paso from NPR, I think my father said their lot cost $50 or $100 their house and they had to pay it in installments. Um, and it, it was just a patch of desert next to a canal and uh, it was we had uh, kerosene lamps, lamparas de petroleo. When it got dark, it really got dark. And if you've ever lived in the desert, in the desert
1: yeah.
2: You know you can the Milky Way is beautiful. Just gorgeous. It pops in the sky. But like, you
1: can't read by it. <laughs> but no, it's beautiful. Oh it but happen. it's it's gorgeous.
2: Yeah. And you know, it it was we 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 did so many things growing up in Isleta when they, when the city annexed the Isleta, and and turned it into, I mean, eventually it became a sort of a working class suburb, but they were putting in the and drain- the
1: public library is now named after you,
2: right? <laughs> yeah, the, the the great thing is in uh, last year in two thousand fourteen, the El Paso City Council voted unanimously to rename the library. And he letter after me, the branch library. So it's actually a very proud moment. Is
1: it because you were there so often growing well, up, Sergio? Were well, you?
2: <laughs> well, and and I, as I told him, I thanked them because it's such an honor. But I, I said, if it encourages other poor kids to read, that's what matters to me. Because I, I was this fat kid who loved to read, who loved to amass these paperbacks, and that changed my life that changed my life, absolutely. This this love of reading and having parents who, even though they were poor, would encourage me to read and would read themselves in Spanish. My parents read in Spanish. And, um, and my father, who did a lot of construction, construction engineering, he wasn't a great reader, but he said, you know, you love to read. Um, you're not getting in trouble. So he built these huge bookshelves in my room where I could house all my books. So, you know, he, he encouraged what he could, yeah. this 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 vocation that I loved, and my mother is a big reader. My mother just is a voracious reader. She has my mother's really incredibly intelligent. Um, I gave her a test before I left for Harvard, and she had, I think I think we got up to number thirty-eight of, of names and phone numbers and addresses of people in her head. Uh, she never had an address book. She remembers all the phone numbers in her head. Um, so you know, so I think I had I had parents who were great parents and and um, and not everybody was like that in East Leda. right in front there were gangs. there was barraca contra Calavera. Barraca was the other side of the uh, an irrigation ditch where we where we lived, and it literally means shack town. And the other side of the irrigation ditch was Calavera, which is where the Sleta Mission was. Mm-hmm. And that's where the cemetery was, and so they call it Skeleton Town. Ooh. And and there were gang fights most weekends. Um, so that was kind of the environment I was growing up in, but I was this chubby kid who loved to read in that environment. And and when they, for example, one of the things I was about to tell you, when, when they started, before they paved the street, they put in these huge pipes for the drainage. So they they started digging these massive holes in the middle of the street to to put these pipes and we would go into one of the pipes and pop out somewhere else <laughs> in the neighborhood and then when they had the uh, the construction they had these these big black balls that looked like bowling balls but full of kerosene with with wicks on them you know to oh, to, to light so right, they could to, work uh,
1: in early or late
2: or... right and 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 i think also just or to late. warn cars not to get close to the construction area At night, when the construction workers would leave, we would take these balls and roll them down the street,
1: like bowling. Right, and then and then
2: the kerosene would spill out and leave lines of fire.
1: Beautiful. And
2: then my my mother would say, "You're doing the work of the devil. What are you doing over there?" So, so for me, it was a lot of fun. It was adventure. It was, you know, it was doing crazy stuff that I would never allow my kids to do now but 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 that was Islera. you know isleta was um a, a wonderful place and and i had wonderful parents and there was also gangs and there was also drugs and there was also you know in front of neighbors who you know and friends who all died before they were 18 because of violence so
1: well, you, you write about um, one of what you've got. One of your uh, an anthology that you edited with Sarah Cortez, "Our Lost Border: Essays on Life Amid the Narco Violence." <coughs> um, this and and this is a more recent book, like 2011, right. or 2013, so, or 2000. I'm sorry, 2013. <coughs> um, do you want some water, Sergio? Because, mm-hmm. um, and this. So this one is actually, um, you write a great introduction for this, but you've got um, people that have written um, these these essays that you print in both English and Spanish in exactly. the first half of the book, and then the second half of the book are these personal stories. Right, and, Yeah, and, and, and I think you...
2: one of the reasons we wanted to do this book was because the El Paso Juarez area that I grew up in is very different from what it is now. We, we used to go to, to Mexico all the time. And it's high school kids, um, where you're drinking and having fun, uh, when you would go to Juarez, you'd, go, you'd never get carted. So, of course, right. where, do you, where do the high school kids go in El Paso? <laughs>
1: yeah, across, just across uh, the river. Exactly. You know?
2: <laughs> absolutely. And, and so we would do that all the time. Dancing, uh, mm-hmm. going to bars, etc. It was safe. Nothing ever happened to us. And, and it was really one city divided by a small little canal that they called the Rio Grande. And, and it, it, was, it was really safe. And all of that changed, or most of that changed after 2008. You know, the the, the horrible violence in Juarez, which is now ebbing, but it, you know the apex, I think, was maybe 2010, 2011. But we wanted to tell the story of the border as it used to be, and and really to to say to people you know don't um, we we hope that this would come back, this kind of border would come back mm-hmm. and it is it is I think now the the violence is is getting less it's not quite what it used to be but um, you know I used to get my hair cut in Juarez as a as a ten year old and a nine year old with my 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 father who would go back to his old neighborhood and get his hair cut so he would take the kids. And we'd go eat, you know, and it's so close that you can go um, to lunch in Juarez and come back to El Paso on the same day. And it was easy. you know, Have before dinner ni- in El Paso. <laughs> right, absolutely. And before 9-11, no problem. Yeah. You could go back and forth, just no problem at all. And, and all of that changed, you know, after the drug violence really started in 2008. So, And it, and it hurt a lot of people in, in more ways than one. And I write about, for example, my cousin Chavita
1: because yours is a world between two worlds exactly your, your story yeah,
2: yeah. And, and I write about um, I had a cousin uh, have a cousin who had a, um, a, um, uh, an auto body shop and uh, and, uh, and he had also um, a restaurant and and um, and he also worked in El Paso many people in El Paso and Juarez have either dual citizenship or have the green card but they are allowed to work mm-hmm. in El Paso so he was traveling back and forth literally every day. He was doing one job and running his business in Juarez and he was doing a, a job in El Paso. And so, of course, what what happened, um, these people, suddenly out of the blue, showed up at his, at his restaurant in Juarez, demanded money for security services um, and told him what would happen to him and his family if they, he did not comply. And... Um, in i think 2 or 3 days he closed everything closed his restaurant had to dismiss all his employees put all his his uh equipment in storage and said i, I had to leave you know he left for uh, for el paso he had because uh, he
1: knew that, the, oh, that there've been to him. stories that this would be this wasn't right. just a, a threat
2: oh absolutely and so so we write about those stories because it's kind of the human cost of loss of creativity. You know, the, 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 this unique border dweller that can be bilingual in Spanish and English, that can work in two worlds, that can skip around. And all of this creativity was lost because of the violence. And, and in some ways, El Paso gained by it, but it also was is lost. And, and so all of that is you know, it's beginning to come back. Some of the restaurants that, that moved from Juarez to El Paso are now moving back to Juarez. Um, the violence is not as bad as it was in 2010, but it's not quite nothing. And um, so we wanted to write about that human cost of uh, these personal stories in that particular collection.
1: And it's, it seems especially important because it seems like when you hear a political conversation about this it's like, it seems very one dimensional it doesn't well, ever
2: uh, well and, and the other thing to think about is they are fighting for our money for the billions of dollars in drug use in this country that's what the, is at stake that's how they can bribe FBI officials uh, you know much You know, a, 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 a Juarez cop earning $20,000, $30,000 know, that's nothing that's chump change for them they're fighting for our money. And as I told my kids, I have 2 a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old. I said, if you use drugs, you're, it, sub- you, you're literally, and I was very blunt with them, I said, you're decapitating Mexicans. That's what you're doing. Because you, you're, you, know, you're, you, know, you live in a New York world or Ann Arbor or Chicago or L.A. You live a very well-to-do life using drugs. You don't know that the cost is happening in a poor community. And I think that's something to really think about. Um, and I'm not a prude. You know, I used to, you know, I, you know, it, I was at Harvard. It wasn't exactly, you know, I wasn't exactly, um, you know, um, perfect. But, but Well, you know, it was the 60s.
1: Yeah.
2: No, and, and, and you have to understand what the cost is and how your role in it because that's the money they're fighting about.
1: And, and you're telling these stories. We're going to take we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be we'll be back um, to speak more with Sergio Troncoso today on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. After a short break, we'll be right back.
0: Hello.
1: Living Raiders. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Sergio Troncoso is here. This song, Sergio, what is this? <laughs> it's of <remind laughs> memory lane. It reminds
2: me of, of, <laughs> remind me of uh, being in the back of a pickup and drinking on the levee, you know, drinking Coors and, and, <laughs> and then Bud and just hanging out in the levee and building a bonfire. And, and, and,
1: and you said looking out over the Rio Grande. <laughs> absolutely.
2: I, that's what the, sound, you know, the song reminds me of. I love Dire Straits.
1: Yeah. Oh, such a time. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so this is kind of nice cause this is bringing us back to this idea. We've been taught, we talked about, um, our lost borders, essays on life amid the narco violence. And, and you, you also have, um, another book that we have on the table with us today. Um, crossing borders, uh, personal essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have your fiction. We have novels. Right. We have, you've talked about a short story, the first one you wrote mm-hmm. at Yale. Um, when do you decide, like, what's right for the fiction and what needs to be an essay? And because well, some of your fiction is also dealing as as with the autobiographical autobiog- too. Well,
2: you know that's that's a very good question, and and I think when when I feel I am writing something that is truthful, that I, I'm trying to explore, explore, let's say, a fight I had with my father, which is. One of the essays in Crossing Borders, personal essays. What it, what, you know, what, why did I have this fight? What does it mean about machismo and how I fought against his machismo? And um, what did I also learn from my father? That was good. And and just trying to make sense of something. And I'm not, I'm not, am not gonna, I'm gonna be honest in the essay. And sometimes honest to a point where I am not necessarily the good guy. I've you know I've done some things that are I would consider morally reprehensible, and and I think that's what an essay is. An essay is this searching for the truth, and you are saying it the way you see it. At least I mean it may not be how he would write it if he were a writer, my father, but it certainly would. You know it's it's it has that sense of this is truthful. Whereas if, if when I'm writing a story. Or writing a novel, and it may be based loosely on my life, or it may be, you know, loose. Um, you know, it may be um, something that kind of happened to me, or happened to one of my brothers, and then I add a few things. You know, I I don't care about the truth, but but there might be a moral truth or an emotional truth, and so I think one of the most important um, jobs of a writer is to, to tell these hard truths. Even if you do it in fiction, even if you do it in a story, to, to tell the truth, to tell the, the stories of characters who are forgotten, of uh, people who are left behind, of uh, people who are ignored. Or, or to, to delve into a question that this society or this community ignores, but is there. And I think that's, that truth-telling is very important, even in fiction. So, so I tend to mix it up, and, and I think one of the reasons is like, you know, I, I work on multiple projects at the same time. Right now I'm working on another novel, and I'm also, I just finished writing a, f- a series of essays, and I just finished writing a couple of stories. So I'm usually working on many things at the same time. And so in many ways that's, that's how it gets all, um, you know, um, in, it, I guess in a way connected and, and related to each other.
1: Would you mind, Sergio, because I feel like well, I'll keep talking to you. We, I feel like we better. Would you mind if we hear some from one of your novels?
2: Sure. So I'm going to read. I'm just going to set it up a little bit. This is from the novel from This Wicked Patch of Dust, which is a novel that came out in 2011. And it, it is um, the story of this Martinez family. And it, they live on the border. They start in Isleta, just like we did. And it's a novel about this family being pushed and pulled all sorts of ways as they grow up and become American. So the the kids are adopting different religions, the kids and different politics. The parents are trying to make sure where they belong, whether they belong in Mexico, although they live in the United States, but then they're facing all these new culture, these new traditions that they don't understand. So it's how, how how are we still a we? And, and I wanted to play this question out through this family, but it's also a question, I think, that, that is central to the United States. How are we still a we when we have conservatives versus liberals, um, Muslims, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, you know, all of us different geographies that sometimes have very little relation to each other? I wanted to play this, this um, question out through this novel and this family. Anyway, so this section I'm reading.
1: This is like big philosophy. Oh, it man? is absolutely,
2: yeah. and anyone who knows me, because one of my graduate degrees at Yale is in philosophy, is I love philosophy and literature. People like Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and, and and you know Heidegger, um, Thomas Mann, etc. So anyone who knows me knows I am working on philosophy and a philosophical agenda behind my stories, and and I think that in some ways makes me a little bit unusual in terms of Latino lit. Um, because I I do love philosophy. Um, So in this particular scene is Mael, who's called Mayelo. Mayelo is his nickname. He's 18, and it's 1982, and he's about to give uh, some big news to his grandparents, his abuelitos, Doña Josefina and Don Pedro. Don't go. What are you going to do so far away from your familia? Doña Josefina said with a catch in her throat. It's the best school in the country, abuelita. I have to go. I want to go. In the small living room that faced the red brick tenements across the street, Don Pedro soaked his feet and dropped tablets of salt into the hot water. The old man wiggled his toes and grinned into the warm night air and gently closed his eyes. Doña Josefina heated a quesadilla, oozing with of cheese on her skillet on the stove while Ismael slowly munched on a quesadilla quarter at the table. "'You don't know anybody in Boston. "'By the time you come back, "'your grandfather and I will be buried in the hot sand. "'Stay in El Paso and go to college here like Panchito.'" Abuelita, did you know President Kennedy went to that school? Senators and presidents and very famous people have gone to Harvard. It costs more than $10,000 per year to go to the school. Jesús, María y José, puros malditos ricachones, you'll be poor and alone if you go there. They sat down on her porch just outside the living room. In the darkness, Doña Josefina's face was momentarily lit when she struck a match to light her cigarette. She hunched over and stared at the concrete floor. The hump on her back was almost as high as her head. They're giving me una beca, abuelita. This school will change my life. What do I know about these things, Mayelo? I'm just a poor Mexicana with nothing but this viejo in the living room with his stinky feet. What are your parents going to do without you? First Marcos, then Julieta, and now you. I know we don't count for anything, but I say don't go. I'll miss everybody too, but I'll be back for Christmas. And for the summer, Abuelita, it's the best school in the United States. You'll come back a different person. Worse, you won't want to come back after you see everything out there. Why would you want to come back to this horrible nada? Abuelita, that's not true. I'll be back. I'll call you every week. On the weekends when it's cheaper, I'll learn so much. Nobody at Isleta has ever been to Harvard. At least no one the teachers can remember. It's a great honor, mijo. We know that. I'm sure everyone in Isleta is proud of you. But this is who you are, she said for a moment, scanning the dark night air in the empty street. A cricket chirped in the darkness. God help you when you go to this Harvard. You'll be so far away from us, from everything you know. You'll be alone. What if something happens to you? Who's going to help you? But you always wanted to be alone. You were always so independent, so stubborn, like you. Ay, Dios, just remember your familia Mayelo. Go, but come back, Doña Josefina said sadly, taking a quesadilla quarter from the the ground. She handed the rest to Ismael. She stared at the screen door for a moment, her lazy eye ablaze in a red light as she inhaled her cigarette. Pedro, get up and wash the dishes. This hombre is unbelievable. He'll sleep all day if I let him. Get up before I go in there with a broomstick and smash it on your head, viejo pestoso. Oiga, señora, a raspy voice proclaimed on the other side of the screen door. Don't you know that you're talking to one of the kings of Harvard? Ahora verás, cabrón. They throw you in the trash at Harvard. That I know. So that's a little scene from from this wicked patch of dust.
1: Thank you, Sergio. That's, in that one, it feels like it's capturing this real life tension among well, between the two characters, knowing that the grandfather is there, too.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, maybe, you know, and they are roughly my my grandparents, um, in a way. And, um, you know, there's this, I think one of the things that certainly when I left for, you know, for, for the Ivy League, is that, uh, you know, I missed the last years of my grandparents. And uh, so there's this bitterness. You know, I I still probably would have gone... But uh, I was also... That was a big loss in in, in, in many ways. So um, you
1: have her, actually, the character of the grandmother, Abuelita, saying, we'll be buried in the hot sands in yeah. the scene.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's, you know, that's what you lose when you leave your home. And I think, um, you know, you also have to try to make sense of it and, and why it happened. And uh, I think in some ways keeping her alive in literature helps me um, and i think she would be she actually when her the that first story appeared she right before she died it the appeared the first
1: story you were telling us Diabolita, about the right the,
2: okay and uh and i showed her the review that it appeared in she was very happy she was showing all her neighbors she was saying oh look at this look i'm i'm in a, a story now <laughs> and you know, she couldn't read it but uh but she loved knowing that uh that, you know, that uh, that she was in print in a way. And she was, you know, she was exactly like that. She ran that household, believe me, she was the boss. <laughs> so, you know, strong women, I, I find very appealing in part because of that. Uh, my mother is also a very strong woman, you know, and, uh, and I think it's great. I think it's, uh, you know, for me, they were the leaders of the household. They were the people who taught me so many good things about reading and about, you know, character. And and invisible things that that later I think would would help me, you know, when I was alone at, at a place like Harvard,
1: and when you're also teaching your sons,
2: absolutely, absolutely, you know, to to first have integrity. That's the most in your name, you know. That if you, for example, when you're you know when you're a teacher, I know teachers who just do the least possible, and just you know they want to get back to their own work, et cetera. But you know, if I'm teaching a class. Those kids are going to get everything of me, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. But then after it's done, I get back to my work. But, you know, you you have to do things for the right reasons, and I think my parents taught me that.
1: We're going to take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Sergio Troncoso is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Sergio Troncoso is here. The book's on the table with us. Sergio, we've got The Nature of Truth, Crossing Borders, Personal Essays, From This Wicked Patch of Dust, the novel we just heard in the last quarter, a section of and our Lost Borders, Essays on Life Amid the Narco-Violence. You are very busy, and you've always got many projects going, which is kind of exciting. You're not the first writer in your family.
2: No, no. In fact, my grandfather, uh, you know, just as I got the oral storytelling bug from my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my paternal grandfather, Santiago Troncoso, if you Google it, by the way, you'll see it the big avenue in Juarez. Um, was a newspaper editor, founder of El Dia, which was a daily, the first daily newspaper in Juarez in the 1920s. And he was thrown in jail something like 50 times and uh, his print shop firebombed three times um, for writing critical articles against Mexican government corruption back then. And um, and so he was So this, this
1: truth telling runs oh, in the absolutely. family.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Well, the, the interesting when I was an 18-year-old kid in Isleta, writing for the school newspaper and my grandfather had retired and we would go over uh, and I was interested in journalism, wasn't sure if was I was going to become a writer or whatever. And and I asked him and he said, "Don't become a journalist or a writer," he said, "because if you tell the truth, people will hate you forever." That was my grandfather's advice, and I, and I ignored it, of course. But, you know, he had a really colorful life, and the interesting thing about his life is that, you know, while he lived, they kind of hated him because he was this Woodward Bernstein of his era in, in northern Mexico. But then after he retired and moved to El Paso, they named the street after him, a huge avenue, and then they, there's a, a statue called El Papelero, which means a bronze paper boy in front of one of the newspaper offices. <laughs> And it's the Freedom of the Press uh, statue, and there's three signatories on that statue, and my grandfather is one of them. So, you know, after he left, they made him into a hero. Right. Uh, I think that that they tells tell you a lot about don't... Mexico, <laughs> you know, or maybe many other many, many other countries where, when you live and you really are trying to change things, they hate you, but then once you die, they make you. They
1: recognize. Right.
2: Them. They make you into, you know, MLK.
1: <laughs> the hero. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, so your first. Okay, so your first novel, The Nature of Truth, right. was published um, 2003. in 2003. And now you revisited it, and it was just published last year. By, this, year. Uh, or this, this year. Oh, 2014. I'm
2: still a year behind. It
1: don't worry. It's all, it's all blurry. <laughs> um, but Eloisa at Arte Publico Press right. um, had you know, said, w- uh, said that it was just just reissued right. then again, but that it wasn't just a not just a new edition. It it was actually an edition that you have made revisions. Oh, you went I, I through...
2: extensive so. revisions, and I, there's even two plot changes in the novel. So um,
1: tell us about this. Well, Why and then, uh, yeah.
2: Well, you know, I mean, first it's philosophy and literature. It's okay. about this guy Helmut Sanchez, who's 26 years old. He's half German half Mexican and he is this researcher at Yale and he discovers this old essay 40 50 years old in the Yale libraries that says some horrible things about the holocaust so he starts this quest to find out who wrote this letter he suspects it's his old boss Werner Hofkartner who this about to retire professor who originally was in Germany so Helmut travels to Italy and to Austria to find out the background, the truth behind this professor. So it's about, does the past matter as much as the present? It's also a story about, um, you know, um, when you find something wrong about something that happened, something that, somebody who has had accolades and honors, and yet you find out he has a sordid background, what's your responsibility to do something about it? Somebody who got away with it. So to speak, and and so it's it's about this righteousness, this streak of righteousness in helmet that he feels he has to do something about it, and so I, I wrote the novel in two thousand three, and it did very well, and uh, and it's, it's you know it's in some ways a response to Crime and Punishment because Dostoevsky is one of my favorite writers, and um, and it was a way of exploring some of the questions in Crime and Punishment in a new way. And, and I did it through The Nature of Truth. And so I wrote it, and it and it, and it came out. And then, you know, I, I was publishing, and, and I was never quite satisfied. I think some of the things that I knew about how to write a novel way back then, maybe I, I had improved on. And so just for the heck of it, a couple of summers ago, when I was in between books, I said, I'm going to rewrite this novel. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't, you know, tell no one at all. Just rewrote it. Changed it. Every single page is different. It's the same story, except with these two important
1: changes. How did you? So, did you know that those changes were something that you felt in the story, or did you know them as you were writing your way through the story? I, I, I again? felt
2: they had to be there. Uh-huh. You know, as I as I rewrote it and tightened the language, and 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 I felt improved it. And really, it's probably because I'm I'm kind of a crazy writer, and I want to Isn't leave. is it everyone? <laughs> I want to leave my best work behind. And so, you know, and so I said, I'll just rewrite it and see what happens. So I rewrote it, changed it, and then I pitched it to Arte Publico Press, and they took it in about two or three weeks, which was remarkable. It never happens that fast. And uh, so it just came out in 2014, the new version, and it truly is a new version. And on the cover is this kind of night, which is a, um, it's a stained glass window, from one of the Yale libraries and it's sort of a knight in shining armor and it's questing for the truth, so to speak. And and it, 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 this is really also <clears throat> you know, one of the things I I I learned at being at places like Harvard and Yale that the quest for the truth there is there's a lot of mental violence that goes on. It's it's a serious business. And in a seminar room and when you're trying to argue for your point a lot of, there's a lot of psychological damage that happens um, with people. And there's a lot of things that are under the table that are not really discussed when you're going at each other, you know, in this intellectual combat. So I wanted to also describe that kind of, um, you know, psychological violence that happens at places like Harvard and Yale. And, 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 and really to write about uh, a criticism of the Enlightenment. You know, there's a lot of philosophy in it. And it, 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 people have, who have read it have said, well, this is a remarkably, you know, philosophically uh, informed novel. And even the, the chairman of the philosophy department, Michael De La Roca from Yale, gave me a really great blurb, and he really liked it. Because I, I was trying to make alive some of these questions of right and wrong, the past versus the, the present, of what's our moral responsibility when you find out a neighbor has done something wrong. You know, these very basic questions and play them out through characters and, and, and get people. So, And then when you do something wrong and it starts eating at you, you know, how do you survive that? How do you survive when you've done something awful? Um, can you survive that? And uh, so it's, it's kind of pulling yourself from your own bootstraps in a psychological way. So all of these questions are... At the heart of this novel, the nature of truth, and, and it, you know, and it's also, it's kind of thumbing my nose at um, at a lot of stereotypes about Latino literature, because when when my first book came out, people said, "Oh, you know, um, you know, you're you're writing sort of interesting stories about Chicanos, um, discussing Heidegger and all this stuff," and you know, we're not just visual beings; some of us are actually. Um, like philosophy and are intelligent. And there's so much stories in which you're just the hot Latino or the hot Latina and these kind of mindless beach reading stupidities. And, and that's what people want. And in fact, you'd be surprised and how often New York publishers want that. They want the stereotype. Anyway, so it, it's in my way of saying, you know, we want to expand the kind of literature Latinos and and really American literature um, can 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 do and so it's it's sort of a challenge in a way.
1: Yeah, and this idea that you're you're crossing multiple borders, you're blurring many like these boundaries between the in betweenness.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And for the I, self, for the. Well, and you know, and and, and, and I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Voltaire that said uh, something like, um, you know certainty is, is an absurd position. Um, you know, you, Good old Voltaire. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you you want to challenge yourself. As soon as you're comfortable, as soon as you feel you've made it, that's when you start dying, in my mind. So you you have to challenge yourself. You have to push that border, whatever it is. When, you, when you're in Isleta, you want to go to somewhere like Harvard. When you're at Harvard, you want to criticize Harvard and Yale. And
1: bring a little of the Isleta. Hey, Isleta the, the, in yeah, there,
2: yeah. absolutely. And then when you reach another point... You want to push another border, and I think that's that's what keeps a human being alive, thinking, and challenged, and and I hope you know that's how I will be until I I. I drop.
1: Well, you've got a library now, Sergio. <laughs> so maybe you're on your way to a statue too. Well, you know, I mean,
2: it, you know, it, my my mother said, "No te creas muy 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 mean, Don't think of yourself as too much, too much. You know, with your nose in the air. <laughs> Believe me, they keep me humble. And you know, when you start thinking that way, that's when you start just uh, right. I, I, dying and ossifying, yes. you know. And yeah. and so I'm happy. I'm 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 t- I'm thrilled that you know the local public library is named after me. But you know, I, I, I'm mad. I haven't written. 10 books. I've only written 5.
1: Back to the writing then, right? Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for
2: inviting me, T, to your program. It's been great.
1: Come back anytime. Today on the program, Sergio Troncoso has been here. He'll be tomorrow at UMA 5.10 p.m. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to the Liz for Engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
0: the dog Hello.
3: Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Morris Fabry. I'll be your host for today. On the other side of the glass, I have Jeff Chan with me, and we have, I'd say, a lot to talk about today. Today, in case you were unfamiliar, was National Signing Day, or basically the biggest day of the year for football, college football recruiting. Michigan gained themselves a couple of commits today, Uh, among others. They got uh, Tyrone Wheatley Jr., the son of the running backs coach. He's a tight end or defensive end commit. Sheldon Johnson, a defensive end out of Florida. Karan Higdon, a running back, also out of Florida. Grant Perry, they got yesterday, stole him from Northwestern, but uh, in all... It was a bit underwhelming for some Michigan fans as they also didn't land any marquee names, the likes of Iman Marshall, top cornerback in the nation, went to USC. Um, let me think. Yeah, and, and Chris Clark, top tight end, chose UCLA. So Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh, he got some of his targets. He helped fill out the class that now has 14 players. Michigan's now the 35th ranked recruiting class in the nation. Uh, but some fans might have wanted more out of this. Jeff? Would you say that uh, this signing day and this recruiting class in general was disappointing for Michigan football, or would you say that uh, you know maybe Harbaugh did all he could given the late start that he got?
0: I think he did all he could. Um, he really only, in the end of the day, had less than a month to recruit, um, while other programs have had been recruiting these same guys for over for a year or even two years. So I think. Um, I think Harbaugh Rhodes had a script.